invite you to find the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, and verse 37. We're going to consider the remaining part of this chapter today in a message entitled, Freedom is Found in the Grace of God. The last time that we were together, I told you that there are certain sections of Scripture that are more complex and in-depth than others and require some careful attention in order to be able to understand uh, under the uh, power of the Holy Spirit, what is being taught. And I certainly think uh, this particular passage that we're looking at today is one of those. So I say that by way of introduction uh, to ask you to focus in for these next few minutes together. Stay with me. Uh, you'll need your thinking caps as we uh, process uh, what God's Word is teaching us. I think any time that we focus on what is right and what is wrong, or there's an emphasis on personal holiness or the importance of our testimony or our witness, either inside the church or outside the church in the community, sometimes people cry foul about that, and they say that's legalism. What you're saying we should do is legalism. You shouldn't be telling me what I can or can't do uh, don't put any limits on me because I am free in Christ. Now, certainly, we are free in Christ. Uh, we're going to go deep in that grace here in these next few minutes together. Uh, but what has been contrasted in the passage before us is the issue of legalism and how that relates to the gospel and our understanding of a relationship with God. And then I want to show you the contrasting side of that as well, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum uh, that will help us uh, frame both of these and maybe better understand uh, where Jesus is taking us in this particular passage. Legalism, by definition, is an effort to gain favor or approval with God uh, based on the things that we avoid or the things that we do. It does not have a primary concern for the condition of the human heart. Tom Schreiner said legalism exists when people attempt to secure righteousness in God's sight by good works. Legalists believe that they can earn or merit God's approval by performing the requirements of the law. On the other end of that spectrum are what we would call antinomians or antinomianism, which comes from the Latin word meaning against the law. Antinomianism is the tendency to disparage or to outright dismiss the precepts and commandments and ordinances of the faith with the intention of personal freedom. Thomas Boston said antinomianism says that it is needless for a man perfectly justified by faith to endeavor to keep the law and to do good works. It's the attitude that because I am free in Christ, I can do whatever I want to do without any concern for personal holiness or without any real concern for my own testimony. I have that freedom and I'm going to lock down in it and I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, obviously, we can caricature both of these to the extreme, and that is not my intent. My intent is instead to help us understand the basic ideas, and particularly this issue of legalism, so that we can understand how to live in the freedom that we have in the grace of God. Now, the Apostle Paul addressed how believers are justified by faith alone. 
I'll not read the passage right now, but go back to the heart of it in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 through 26. He lays the groundwork, uh, the foundation really, uh, telling us that we are justified by faith in Christ. It's because of his shed blood that we are declared righteous in the sight of God. And it's important that we understand what it means to live by faith alone. Yesterday was what we would refer to as Reformation Day, uh, noting the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, and particularly Martin Luther's actions. And he wrote in Faith Alone, he said, It is faith without good works and prior to good works that takes us to heaven. We come to God through faith alone. So I would say that legalism and antinomianism are on opposite ends of the spectrum from biblical faith. Justification by faith sets us free in Christ, and then with that freedom comes the desire and the responsibility to glorify God with our lives. Neither legalism or antinomianism are names that are chosen or used voluntarily. They're labels often uh, that are applied to people based on their beliefs and their actions. And the reality is people don't fit very well into either one of those categories very neatly. Because sometimes if it's something that we hold on to really tightly, whether it be a tradition or something that we think people ought not be doing, we might trend toward being more of a legalist. And on the other hand, if it's something that we want to do, but it's over here in the area of Christian freedom, and we're not real sure whether or not we should be doing it, uh, then we're going to push hard in that direction. And we can kind of have uh, mixed motives in doing so. So where these issues are lived out is in your day-to-day life, in the decisions that you make as a follower of Christ, and then ultimately in the ethics that you apply to your life, whether it be vocationally or in your family or in the community or whatever, these things are very practically lived out. Jesus had more conflict with the legalists in the scripture than he did anybody else, any other group. They added human commands and teachings and man-made rules. They made any concept of the faith burdensome and complicated. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were more concerned with outward appearance than they were with an inward change. John 1 and verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Everything that there is about following Jesus as his disciple flows out of a faith relationship with God. It is God who makes us new in Christ, and it is God who sets us on a lifelong uh, pursuit of growing in the likeness of Christ. And one of the great failures of man-made religion is that it is an attempt to fix the outer person, to make the outer person look good to other people, but it neglects the fact that God looks upon the heart. J.C. Ryle explained, he said, Give first the offering of the inward man. Give your heart, your affections, and your will to God as the first great alms which you bestow. And then all your other actions proceeding from a right heart are an acceptable sacrifice and a clean offering in the sight of God. What Jesus presents here are several woes. They are warnings telling us about what's important and about what we need to stay away from. And I want to share with you uh, three warnings that I see here in this passage. And the first is this, 
Warning number one is beware of emphasizing the external and neglecting the internal. Beware of emphasizing the external and neglecting the internal. We begin reading in verse 37 of Luke chapter 11. And as he spoke, Jesus was speaking. A certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Sort of as a backdrop to our understanding of what a Pharisee is, and how this applies is the greater, broader subject of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is mentioned 22 times in the Bible. The word comes from a word meaning assembly or council. You might remember in the Old Testament that God commanded Moses to bring 70 of Israel's elders who were leaders and officials to the tent of meeting. And they were to serve basically as a Sanhedrin. They were overlooking the uh, political and the religious matters of the people, primarily religious, of course, because of the worship at the tent of meeting. But further than that, in every town that had at least 120 men who were heads of families, there would be a Sanhedrin of, of sorts that would be organized. If there were not that many men in a particular area or village, then they would use a smaller number. The great Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. It was made up of 70 men along with the high priest. They would meet in the temple and they would issue binding decisions over the people. Now, remember, Rome was the ruling power at that time, so they were actually the the dominant power, and it was because Rome gave them the ability that they were able to meet under that, and they were able to oversee the matters of the people in both civil and religious issues. The Pharisees were sort of a subset within the Sanhedrin. And they made up what amounted to a minority, uh, as far as what we can tell, but they were very influential. The word Pharisee uh, means separated. They were known for their personal piety, their outward uh, lives. They accepted both the written law and the oral tradition, and they taught also that the Jews should observe the entirety of the Torah as well as other things that they had added, many other things that they had added. And one of those things was the ceremonial purification that had been prescribed within the law. These Pharisees were business people. They were leaders of the synagogues. Um, They had both political and religious influence. Uh, Many of them were scribes or experts in the law. 
And uh, they also held to an oral tradition that, in addition to the law, made things quite complicated. Now, in the Gospels, the Pharisees are often viewed as prideful, hypocritical, and self-righteous. Of course, not all of them are that way. We encounter Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, who was seeking after the Lord Jesus. We know that uh, the Apostle Paul was actually trained as a Pharisee and was a persecutor of the church, so he was certainly seen in a negative light until Jesus Christ changed his life. Uh, So certainly there were some among the Pharisees who had to have been seekers and interested in what it was that was being taught by Jesus. But Jesus had just warned the people in the verses preceding this against the danger of spiritual light becoming darkness in them. Now, why is that important? Because he was giving them spiritual light. They were turning it into something that it was not intended to be. And when it was falsely presented and wrongly taught, it actually became darkness in the lives of the people. And in the verses before us, a Pharisee invites Jesus to come to a meal. And you might think, well, that's a nice thing for the Pharisee to invite Jesus to a meal. But he was not inviting him with good motivations. Uh, They wanted to trap Jesus and trip him up in something that he would say or do. And immediately when Jesus goes to the meal, he doesn't engage in the ritual washing. He doesn't go through this elaborate procedure that they required. And the Pharisee was surprised that he didn't. Now, they were really strict about this. They said that bread that was eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. They took it very seriously. They said that uh, there was one rabbi that said to have been excommunicated because he didn't go through the motions and another one was in prison. So this move by Jesus was pretty much an in-your-face, on-the-offensive, about-to-make-a-major-point kind of an action that Jesus took when he doesn't go through the motions. So he turns the focus and he says, you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but the inward parts are full of greed and wickedness. See, what they were doing was they were careful to maintain the appearance of righteousness because they wanted people to think that they were good people and that they were living according to righteousness. But they were only concerned with the external, and in reality, the internal was not matching up. And Jesus focuses here on the ultimate reality that God knows the heart. He says, foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. So the message was, give away your greed, get rid of your wickedness, get rid of your sin, The inside ought to match the outside. And these religionists were something outwardly, but inwardly they were very different. Now what that's referred to is a hypocrite. We're going to see that in the passage that follows uh, next week, the, the very issue of hypocrisy more in depth. And that's what Jesus is pointing out in them. Jesus spoke against the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7 and 8 where he said, You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Friends, we've got to be careful that we're not just honoring God 
with our mouths, but that our hearts measure up to what it is that we say we believe according to the grace of God. Now, interestingly, he points out that they did tithe. Uh, They were getting some credit here for what they were doing. But Jesus said, the problem is you're ignoring the weightier matters. The weightier matters being justice and the love of God is what Jesus references here. So things like the stranger, the fatherless, the widow uh, were apparently of little concern to these people. They were more concerned about whether or not they were right in what it was that they were presenting. Now, here's the heart of the problem. Our hearts are prone to pride. Our hearts are prone to pretense. We want other people to think well of us. So even if our hearts are far from God, we might go through the motions outwardly to make people think that we are doing right. And in fact, we are very wrong. Now, he points out a particular issue here that's interesting. He said, you love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Now, what was that referring to? Well, they liked attention. The best seats in the synagogues at that time were up front, and the people could see how wonderfully religious they were, what wonderfully righteous people they were as they sat in the front. Now, I realize today the treasured seats in a Baptist church are actually the back seats So I don't know if that has any parallel at all with where you're sitting today. But in those days, it was up front, and they wanted attention. They wanted, when they went through the marketplace, for people to see them and to greet them. Oh, these are are the Pharisees. These are the religious people. These are the people who've really got it together. And Jesus says their heart is in the wrong place. See, the Bible is clear. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the bottom line is that God knows the depth of your commitment. He knows your faith. And you're to submit every part of your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ and live in the freedom that he has called you to live in. Warning number two, beware of corrupting others. Beware of corrupting others. We pick back up reading in verse 44. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like graves which are not seen. And the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Jesus uses an illustration here that, while it is interesting, does not serve as a very clear parallel for us uh, in our understanding. Uh, Graves in those days were considered to be ceremonially unclean. And if you were to walk on a grave, for example, uh, because there was in fact a dead body within that grave that would make you ceremonially unclean, then you would be unclean. And if a person was on their way uh, to worship at the temple, and they unknowingly stepped on one of these graves and became ceremonially unclean, then when they got to the temple, then they would make that place unclean as well. And Jesus is drawing a spiritual parallel in that these Pharisees were so concerned about external religion 
that they were sources of spiritual contamination for other people. Or to state it another way, the Pharisees were spiritual polluters. Their internal lives did not match up to what they professed. And as a result of that, they were causing other people to be led astray spiritually. Now, I believe that legalism has the effect of repelling unbelievers from the faith. And the reason that I think legalism repels unbelievers from the faith is because it pollutes the gospel to make it something that it's not. So the mentality, for example, that a person has to clean their life up and they have to get certain things in order and they have to change certain behaviors and they have to stop doing certain things before they can get saved in order to be right with God. That is a pollution of the gospel because the gospel is all of grace. And we come to the foot of the cross understanding that we all are wretched sinners. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We could not reform or clean ourselves up enough ever to measure up to the holiness of God. We come and we cast ourselves completely upon the grace of God, recognizing it's only through the blood of Jesus that we are declared righteous. And that's what the gospel is all about. And we need to be careful that we're not adding certain things that are nothing more than legalism and repelling people from the true gospel. Because only God can change a life, and he changes a life from the inside out. And then I think also legalism can confuse young believers because the way that they are taught to pursue God is all wrong. If the outward focus is what it's about, and it's more about uh, keeping the rules and doing certain things and not doing certain things, and that's your concept of what it means to follow God, you could very easily be disillusioned. And I have a theory that there are many uh, Christian families, professing believers in Christian families, who basically live their lives that way to where it's more about the rules than it is about life with God. And as a result of that, young people get confused about what it really means to live in the gospel. And as a result of it, they may not want anything to do with it. Now, obviously, this is not minimizing the importance of holy lives. I think that the core of this is that when God changes your heart on the inside and the root is changed in Christ, then the fruit is going to be different. Then it's going to bear different fruit because of who you are in him. And we don't want to be in a place where we are corrupting others by leading them in a direction that God is not leading them in. Now, there was an expert in the Jewish law who was there, and uh, he made a mistake. He made the wrong move, in fact, because I think apparently he didn't think that Jesus knew the full implication of his words. And Jesus, in turn, says to him, you load people down with these heavy burdens, and yet you don't touch the burdens with even one of your fingers. He said, you're telling people that they're supposed to be doing all this stuff, and you're not even doing it. What, what's that all about? They had taken these commands of Scripture, and they had multiplied them into hundreds of extra uh, restrictions. For example, on the Sabbath, the lawyers had determined that you could travel only a 1,000 yards from your house. But 
If you put a rope at the end of the road a thousand yards away from your house, that rope then became a part of your house, and you could travel a thousand yards beyond the rope. You say, well, that's absurd. Well, of course it's absurd. But this is the direction this goes in if we get away from the freedom that we have in the gospel. Legalism is concerned with peripheral issues and rules when, in fact, God is calling us to live for him out of love. And when we live for him out of love, through his grace, by faith, we are free to experience joy and blessing. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3 says, This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And listen to this. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. They're not intended to be a heavy weight. They're intended to be lived out from a heart of love. And it's vitally important that our thoughts, our desires, and our actions be rooted in faith and be evidenced by surrender. Warning number three, beware of hindering the Word of God. Beware of hindering the Word of God. We pick back our reading in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed kill them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the temple, Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. 52, verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in you hindered. Why does Jesus rebuke them for building the tombs to the past prophets by saying their fathers killed the prophets? Think about it. The primary responsibility of the prophet was to do what? To speak the word of God. So if they killed the prophets who had the responsibility as their essential function to speak the word of God, they were essentially attempting to kill the very word of God itself. And in doing so, they had made it impossible for people to hear the word of God. In the way that they treated the prophets before them, the way they were treating Jesus, the way that they would treat the apostles who would follow was very indicative of who they were. And Jesus said, you're going to be judged because of it. Now, this comparison that he gives with Abel and Zechariah is interesting. Abel being representative of the first prophet, in a sense, uh, because he was killed for his righteous worship of God, Zechariah being the last prophet killed in the order of the Hebrew Bible, and they served as bookend representatives of what they had done against the prophets. And the blood of the righteous men who were killed would be charged against that generation. But I want you to notice verse 52 in particular. He says, you have taken away the key of knowledge. Now, what is Jesus referencing when he says, you've taken away the key of knowledge? I believe the key of knowledge refers to the knowledge of God as revealed in his word. True faith is about knowing God and growing in him. His word 
tells us about his character, his person, tells us about his holiness, tells us about our own sin. It tells us how we can be reconciled to God. All of these things are essential to the faith. And all of these things are about the internal spiritual condition of a human being in light of a holy God. What's legalism about? It's about the external. So what Jesus is saying is don't hinder the word of God or judgment will come upon you if you do. Preaching or teaching the word of God is never to be done from a personal agenda. And the Bible even says that those who teach the word will be held to a stricter account. And I think that teaching can be in a formal context, as in a preacher or a teacher of the Bible, whether it be in a Bible study or some type of discipleship group. I think it can also apply to how we teach the Word in our homes. Because if we are doing anything that hinders the Word of God by making it something that it's not and being unfaithful to it, then we're going to be held accountable for it. You know the verse, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15 uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Or what about Paul's words to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Church, if we corrupt the word, with our own opinions, our own traditions, with our own additions, then we're going to answer to God for it. And we need to be careful that we rightly handle the Scripture. Now you'll note here that after Jesus said what he said, the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him. That's what it says in verse 53. In fact, they assailed him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him, according to verse 54, and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him. Rather than repent, they chose to stay with their own way of thinking. Now, there's a beautiful invitation that comes to us from the Lord Jesus. And that invitation in the Scripture is to come to Jesus in repentance and faith and rest in him. And when you do that, Jesus will change your life. And let me give you a, a sort of a, an evaluative point here or points of application of how you can know if your life is trending toward being a legalist. First of all, if you think the love of God is based on how well you keep the rules, you might be leaning in the direction of a legalist, rather than your heart being captured by the love of God and the desire to glorify God in all things. You think that your outward performance is how to get God to love you more. Or as I've already mentioned, if you think that lost people need to clean their lives up before they get saved, you might very well be prone to legalism. If you notice the bad behavior in other people before you notice your own, and you're judgmental and critical about it, you very well might be a legalist. If you're more passionate about the rules that you find easy to keep than the ones that you find difficult to keep, uh, you're probably a legalist because you're uh, forming something that is outside of the grace of God. If you like going to Bible study more than you like actual serving, 
then you might be a legalist. Or if you admit that traditions are not biblical, but you guard them passionately anyway, traditions that are not scriptural, then you might be a legalist. I want to close with these verses from Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. And here's what Jesus said. This is the invitation to us all. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, I'm going to read the rest of it here in just a moment. But I, I, don't, I just want you to hear the words of Jesus. Maybe you're trying to carry around a heavy load. And you've made the faith something that it shouldn't be. It's burdensome because you've added a bunch of stuff to it that Jesus never intended. And Jesus is inviting you to come to him. And he says, if you will come to him, he'll give you rest. And then the rest of it is this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is is light. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 to 30. The invitation is to come to Jesus. He's the only one that can save you and set you free. And he's the only one that can put you on a life of purpose that will make a difference for all of eternity. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where everybody in this room is spiritually, or listening online, or even listening later to this message. But maybe along the way, you've not understood the gospel. That there is a God who created you and loves you, but He's holy, and He'll judge sin. And because He's holy and He's going to judge sin, uh, He sent His only Son, who was judged on our behalf, who had our sins laid on Him at the cross. And Jesus was crucified and buried and was raised on the third day. And the Bible says, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is there somebody that needs to be saved? You know that you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You're not with Christ. And you need to come and believe in him by faith and be freed to live for him. Would you trust him? Would you say yes to Jesus? Christian, maybe you've gotten off track somewhere along the way and you've been a lot more wrapped up in the externals than you are in the internal. And you're a little bit discouraged right now. You've been trying to carry that load by yourself. And Jesus said that's not what was intended for you. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Will you rest in him there's rest now and eternally to be found in jesus god thank you for your word thank you for the truth that we learn from jesus encounter this meal that he was invited to as we take these words to heart i pray that we will be a people who are transformed by your grace and that we would be freed to live the lives that you want us to live for your glory, and that Christ would be made known to people that don't yet know him. May our lives serve as an invitation of sorts to people that need to follow Jesus. We give this time of conclusion and response over to you. Use it as you see fit, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.